focus on headline. And let's take a look at what major issues are making the headlines today on Focus on Headline. For this, joining us in the studio today, we have our reporters in Changana and Kim Minji. Guys, welcome back. Good, Good evening. evening. Why don't you guys say hello like the way that you guys said hello just now with the whole bowing going on? Hi, Minji. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> just like they do in the Korean, Korean shows, right? Uh, guys, we're going to start things off with the U.S. publicly disclosing information on what seems to be an arms deal between North Korea and Russia. Uh, we have been watching this very carefully, uh, not to mention South Korea, U.S. and Japan, seeing if they could coordinate sanctions on response to this. There has been reports of at least a thousand containers heading over from port in North Korea over to mm -hmm. Russia, potentially hold hundreds of thousands of artillery. Hannah, you're going to start us off. Let's get the latest on North Korea. Sure. Uh, now, John Kirby, the coordinator for strategic communications at the National Security Council, announced on the 13th local time that North Korea has sent more than 1,000 containers of military equipment and ammunition to Russia since the beginning of last month. He proved his words with satellite imagery. Now, if true, North Korea and Russia will be violating Security Council Resolution 1874, which bans the export of all arms and related materials materials to North Korea and prohibits all countries from using their ships to procure arms and related materials from North Korea. Now, Mr. Kirby announced additional sanctions against those assisting in the North Korean arms trade, and a South Korean foreign ministry official also signaled further action, saying, in close coordination with friendly nations, including the United States, we will continue to monitor trends in military cooperation, including the arms trade between Russia and North Korea, and of course, consider additional measures. Now, in this situation, the trilateral cooperation plan is expected to be discussed at the meeting of the nuclear envoys of South Korea, the U.S. and Japan, held in Jakarta, Indonesia on the 16th to 17th this month. Now, the government reportedly plans to discuss its overall response to the North Korean arms deal, including a sanctions option at the meeting. Since imposing sanctions at the Security Council level is not feasible due to the presence of Russia as a veto-wielding permanent member of the Security Council, the three countries are likely to focus more on pushing for their own sanctions. And it will also be interesting to see if the South Korean government moves forward with its own sanctions against North Korea over the arms deal. So there's there's already been a number of uh, different sanctions, whether it be uh, UN sanctions or uh, US sanctions, South Korea sanctions, EU sanctions slapped on North Korea. Uh, the big question of whether or not it's actually effective is a whole different thing. Uh, but there's also a number of sanctions that are put on Russia as well. But the big thing is the UN Security Council resolution. And as has Hannah mentioned, mm -hmm. Russia does have the veto power, but it's only I would say it's only fair that Russia does not get the veto power when it comes to Russia being uh, kind of on the, mm -hmm. the stage right, right as a potential uh, recipient of UN Security Council resolution because in that case only China would have the veto power in some ways China would actually have pressure to kind of not use their veto power in this situation because they're blatantly uh, both of them are violating UN Security Council resolution and of course as a permanent member China does have the responsibility to slap these for sanctions but it is concerning here a thousand containers they're saying is good for hundreds of thousands of artillery they're saying that they're of course going to be using in their war against Ukraine and it's expected that maybe more will be going through we'll find out what kind of measures 
uh, South Korea, the U.S., and Japan will pull through here. And of course, the U.S. strategic bomber B-52 will be arriving in South Korea. Minji, let's talk about the significance of this and, of course, the deployment of the B-52 here in South Korea. Sure. So the United States is set to deploy its B-52 Stratos Fortress, a key military asset, to the Korean Peninsula this week, where it will make a historic landing at a South Korean airbase. The B-52 Strato Fortress, renowned for its strategic capabilities, including the potential to carry nuclear weapons, has previously engaged in joint exercises alongside the South Korean Air Force over the South Korean Peninsula. However, this marks the very first time it will touch down at a South Korean air base. The B-52 is one of the major U.S. strategic bombers along with the B-2 Spirit and B-1B Lancer, which landed at Osan Air Base in Pyeongtaek, 60 kilometers south of Seoul in September 2016. The forthcoming landing of the B-52 within South Korea is interpreted as a stern warning message to North Korea, which remains deeply committed to advancing its nuclear and missile capabilities. North Korea, known for its sensitive reaction to the deployment of B-52s in the Korean Peninsula is expected to strongly oppose this inaugural B-52 landing on South Korean soil. Previously, in July, Pyongyang denounced the U.S. deployment of strategic nuclear assets to the Korean Peninsula, quote-unquote, the most undisguised nuclear blackmail against North Korea. Meanwhile, the U.S. nuclear-powered aircraft carrier Ronald Reagan, or CVN-76, has completed its five-day port visit to Busan and departed South Korea today. That's right. Again, I mean, they've mentioned uh, a lot of these uh, nuclear assets that uh, the, the U.S. is uh, placing here in South Korea, especially with the B-52. This is the one big thing that North Korea is really, really concerned about. And, uh, of course, they're going to come out and say that this is their way of showing that they're ready to invade North Korea at any time and so forth. And there is a high chance that there's going to be some sort of uh, provocation. But we also have to take into consideration coming in. It is uh, October right now. I believe it was around this time around that North Korea uh, was supposed to be testing their third uh, new, uh, what is it? Uh, uh, military spy satellite in the time being. And so maybe this is something else that we have to take a look into. Uh, speaking of North Korea, Julie Turner, the U.S. State Department Special Envoy for North Korea Human Rights, has administered the oath of office and began her official duties. It's been six years and nine months since the last U.S. Special Envoy on North Korea Human Rights. Uh, of course, Robert King stepped down in 2017. By the way, Robert King recently came out uh, kind of slamming the Biden administration recently. Uh, Hannah, fill us in on the latest. Sure. The State Department announced on Friday that Julie Turner, the new special envoy on North Korean human rights, has begun her official duties. And Ambassador Turner will be uh, traveling to Seoul from the 16th to the 18th as part of her first trip as a special envoy. Now, the special envoy Turner will meet with a wide range of officials, uh, individuals including government officials, civil society organizations, North Korean defectors and journalists to discuss her priorities as special envoy, uh, joint efforts to advance human rights in North Korea, and of course ways to facilitate reunification of separated families. Now Turner's arrival marks the resumption of a special envoy on North Korean human rights after a six-year hiatus following the resignation of former special envoy Robert King in January 2017.
Now, the position was created under the North Korean Human Rights Act of 2004, but has been vacant for nearly six years since the Trump administration took office. Now, President Joe Biden nominated Julie Turner as the new special envoy for East Asia and the Pacific. Still, it took nine months for her to be confirmed by the Senate and begin her official duties. During the Senate Foreign Relations Committee confirmation hearing in May, then-nominee Turner made it clear that North Korean human rights are an international security issue, and she also expressed her desire to reinstitute a public public meeting on North Korean human rights at the UN Security Council and to hold those responsible for human rights abuses accountable. That's right, but we talked about the frustration that comes with this, right? I mean, despite the fact that there's again, there's been uh, you know ambassadors on human rights, there's been mm-hmm. talks between uh, even with the UN Security Council earlier this year talking about human rights situation, saying that a lot of the money that should be put into for the people of North Korea is instead uh, being used to fund their nuclear and missile program. Hence, uh, the UNSC kind of getting involved with this. But even despite this, North Korea is going to continue to say that, no, there is no human rights violations going on. We're a perfect country. We live well and uh, nothing happens. And of course, there's been a lack of dialogue uh, happening as well. Uh, in the meantime, South Korea joined the International Committee of the Red Cross as a 2023 donor support group. Uh, tell us, uh, how did it become a member and how will it uh, will South Korea joining the ICRC affect its operation, uh, particularly in North Korea? Minja, you have more on this. Well, yesterday, according to the International Committee of the Red Cross, the ICRC Korean office, South Korea has recently joined ICRC's 2023 donor support group, the DSG, committing to participate in the group's activities until the end of June next year. The DSG consists of high-value contributors who pledge an annual cash donation of over 10 million Swiss francs approximately 1.4 billion Korean won. South Korea generously donated 10.5 million Swiss francs, about 1.5 billion Korean won, to ICRC headquarters and field operations last year and secured its place in the DSG, comprising 21 countries, including the United States, Germany, Japan, among with others. The DSG can express its opinions on ICRC's policies, operational priorities, and organizational functions through discussions and meetings with ICRC headquarters and high-level officials. So this participation is anticipated to impact ICRC's operations in North Korea, where activities were disrupted due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Since North Korea closed its borders in early 2020 as part of its quarantine measures, ICRC withdrew all its personnel from North Korean office, and their return has not yet been facilitated. ICRC, founded in 18 1963 is an independent humanitarian organization based in Geneva, rooted in the Geneva Conventions, aimed at supporting victims of armed conflicts worldwide. And that's been the big concern during the uh, three years or so of the uh, COVID-19 pandemic when uh, North Korea completely locked down its borders is number one. I mean, they, again, blocked out their borders, but also they claimed that there was no COVID-19 issue at hand there. And especially with all the sanctions that are being slapped into North Korea, there was no help going into North Korea. I believe, well, I should say little help because I believe China was sort of kind of helping out uh, at the worst of times. But it is around this time when none of this help. It was 
through the Red Cross and the groups like this, these a lot of these organizations like this, these were the only groups that were somehow able to give at least a minimal help mm -hmm. for the North Korean people. But think about the situation right now, which is why uh, a lot of experts have said that what's going on in North Korea at this time is even worse than the arduous march that they went through in the early 1990s. And so the situation, who knows how bad it is, but it is important that they are uh, put back in there and uh, funds and donations and help, a humanitarian assistance to the North Korean people, I think, uh, should be going in as soon as possible here. Uh, let's talk uh, economy here. South Korea and the United Kingdom have agreed to extend the period of zero or low tariff provisions on bilateral trade for two years, uh, this including uh, next year and also uh, 2025. Hannah, let's get more on this. Sure. Now, if there had been no extension, then British-made products, including cars, food, and beverages exported from the UK to South Korea, would have been subject to higher tariffs starting next January. Now, the trade between South Korea and the UK is worth about 18 billion pounds, which is about $29.6 trillion annually. And the two countries will begin negotiating a new trade agreement later this year. UK International Trade Secretary Nigel Huddleston said that this is fantastic news for British businesses who can continue to sell their goods to South Korea with confidence, noting that the extension of the duty-free period will add certainty to business activity. Now, South Korea is the seventh largest export market for British-made cars and the third largest market for foreign-made cars in the UK. Mike Hawes, the president of the Society of Motor Manufacturers and Traders, said it would have been bad for both countries if new tariffs had been imposed without an agreement to extend the tariff-free period. Now, he added, we look forward to seeing negotiations begin and conclude quickly on a modernized trade agreement that is more beneficial to the automotive industry in both countries, particularly one that increases trade in electric vehicles and related technologies. Yeah, just looking at the top five UK goods exported to South Korea from the UK mm -hmm. uh, the in the end of uh, first quarter of 2023, crude oil, 1.7 billion pounds, uh, tops it. Uh, and also, let's see, 700 million pounds cars. Uh, I think it's all the Land Rovers. Uh, medicinal and pharmaceutical products, uh, mechanical power generators, and clothing. These mm. were the ones out there. I was kind of surprised food wasn't there. Uh, an emergency ministerial meeting on economic affairs was held today amid escalating tensions between Israel and Hamas. You have uh, Deputy Prime Minister Chu Gyeong-ho announcing that the fuel tax reduction measures that was supposed to end at the end of this month is going to expand here temporarily. Uh, certainly good news for all of us, especially because the gas prices have been skyrocketing. Minji, let's get the latest on this. Sure. So Deputy Prime Minister and Minister of Planning and Finance Chu Gyeong-ho announced an extension of fuel tax reduction measures and diesel and natural gas pricing subsidies until the end of this year. Well, as SH said, this was supposed to expire at the end of October. Speaking at an emergency ministerial meeting on economic affairs held at the government complex of Seoul today, Deputy Prime Minister Chu evaluated the ongoing escalation of armed conflicts related to the Israel-Hamas situation as potentially intensifying international oil price volatility. However, he noted that the direct impact on energy supply and the financial and physical sectors remain limited. 
But at the same time, Deputy Prime, Deputy Prime Minister Chu expressed concerns about possible challenges and increased international oil prices leading to volatility in the real economy, the financial markets, and foreign exchange markets. Chu also stressed that Korea will remain vigilant and further strengthen around-the-clock financial and physical monitoring, promptly responding in accordance with situational action plans in cooperation with relevant ministries when necessary. He also said that the government will exert every effort in managing people's lives and price stability, focusing on areas such as energy and daily necessities, and will reinforce on-site inspections to prevent price hikes taking advantage of increased international oil price volatility. And during the meeting, various topics were discussed, including the European Union carbon border adjustment mechanism preparation status, the third phase of measures for job creation, improving to pet insur- insurance, quality management, and among others. I think uh, there's, and this is of course going to lead into our uh, updates on the Israel-Hamas conflict, but the big fear at this time, speaking of oil, is that this conflict, if other countries get involved, uh, namely the United States, the UK, France, and Germany, and so forth, and they've already shown kind of support for Israel, uh, is that some of the countries that are not necessarily in support of Hamas, but in support of Palestine. Because Iran has come out, I believe, uh, recently in the past 24 hours over the, or over the weekend, that if the U.S. gets involved with this conflict, that Iran is not going to stand idly by. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not necessarily that Iran, Iran is going to be sending troops or they're going to be shooting missiles or anything like that. The big fear is that they're going to weaponize oil is Mm -hmm. what it is. And so Iran being a major exporter of oil, Saudi Arabia has come out also saying that they're in support of Palestine. They didn't come out saying that they're None none of them have come out saying that they're in support of the Hamas. I think mm-hmm. the only people that have come out in support of the Hamas were militant groups, and that's not the country there. And so when you have Iran, when you have Saudi Arabia, major exporters of crude oil, uh, the fear is that they're going to weaponize that. And the U.S. also knows this as well. Uh, and so I think, uh, which is why we'll probably talk about this later on, uh, the U.S. is going to start taking a step back in regards to this. But we are going to talk about that situation in Gaza because it is deteriorating mm-hmm. drastically right now as Israel has intensified its airstrikes. They imposed a full blockade on mm-hmm. Gaza in response to the initial attacks by the militant group Hamas. Uh, re- resulting in a spate of civilian casualties, which they're saying majority of them are children and women. Uh, Hannah, you're going to give us the latest on what's going on over there in the Middle East. Yes. Now, the consequences of war are um, devastating, as you all know. And according to a World Health Organization official, 60% of those killed in Gaza last week were women and children. Now, the death toll on both the Israeli and Palestinian sides surpassed 4,000 as the war, which began with Hamas attacks, entered its ninth day. The health ministry in the Hamas-ruled Palestinian territory of Gaza says the cumulative death toll by this evening is 2,670, and the injured stand at 9,600. Now, the Israeli death toll stood at more than uh, 1,500. The concerns are particularly high after Israel notified Gazans to evacuate to the south for safety before a ground war. More than one million residents have fled south, but many are still unable to leave their homes, including those who fear an Israeli attack while fleeing, as well as uh, patients, elderly, pregnant women, and the disabled. 
The UN agencies have warned that mass evacuations under lockdown would be disastrous, and doctors feared that thousands of people could die as hospitals were overwhelmed with injured people and running out of fuel and basic supplies. Israel says it has resumed water supplies to southern Gaza amid concerns about a humanitarian crisis in the Strip, and an Israeli uh, official told CNN that they are working on creating humanitarian zones in Gaza that will provide access to food, water, and more. The concerning thing right now, and I'm trying to get the latest updates uh, in regards to this, Mm -hmm. uh, they were saying evacuation uh, processes have been going on, and we've talked about how it's ultimately, remember, even the Palestinians have come out saying that they do not represent the Hamas. Now, surely there might be some in Palestine, mm-hmm. uh, some in Gaza regions that are in support of the Hamas. Yes. Who knows? But the Hamas does not represent Palestine is what a lot of people are saying. And they're trying to evacuate the area as quickly as possible here. Uh, there's been warning signs that Israel may be starting soon their ground operations mm-hmm. as well. Minji, let's get some details on this front. Well, amid intensifying hostilities between Israel and Palestinian militant group Hamas, Israel issued a final warning to residents in the Gaza Strip via social media platform X, formerly Twitter, on the 15th local time. The notice urged Gaza Strip residents to evacuate from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. on that day, which is 4 p.m. to 7 p.m. Korean time. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu visited a military base near the Gaza Strip wearing body armor a day before to boost the morale of troops preparing for a ground offensive. According to the New York Times, thousands of Israeli soldiers armed with tanks, armored vehicles, and special forces are expected to enter the Gaza Strip soon to eliminate top Hamas leadership. So the primary objective of the ground operation is the assassination of top Hamas leaders, especially Yahya Simwar, the leader of the Hamas military wing, the Is al-Din al-Qassam brigades, and Mohammed Dif, the leader of the al-Qassam brigades. To achieve this goal, Israel is planning to deploy the largest force since the 34-day war with Hezbollah in Lebanon in 2006. Civilian casualties are expected to be significant if ground forces are deployed, it is virtually impossible to distinguish between at least 30,000 Hamas militants and civilians among the 1.1 million residents in northern Gaza. Now, the concerning thing has been the talks of ceasefire here. Mm -hmm. Uh, I believe over the weekend there was uh, talks, or it was Friday, I believe, there was talks about maybe a three-hour ceasefire a humanitarian ceasefire just to let some people out. Uh, earlier today, uh, for our listeners out there, uh, the Egyptian security uh, forces have come out saying that Israel had agreed. It was the U.S., Israel, and oh, Egypt, who, Egypt mm-hmm. right? They were involved with the ceasefire talks here. But uh, apparently there's talks about this kind of uh, falling apart here. Maybe we'll try to get more updates on this. But Iran is the kicker. We've talked about how Iran has been very uh, vocal in regards to this. Now, there are, I can't say that they are a supporter of Hamas. I think uh, Iran has come out saying that they're not in full support of the Hamas, although there has been groups within Iran who said that they're in full support of Hamas. I think they're being very careful with this right now. Uh, talks of Any talks of Hamas support is kind of on a dangerous level at this time. Uh, but they've 
also kind of it seems like there's been reports that there's movements to assist the Hamas is what they're saying, which is why there's this speculation that arises that Iran continues to assist the Hamas. That's where the speculation comes from. But nevertheless, let's talk about this latest report uh, coming out. Minji, you have more on this as well. So the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, uh, which is speculated to be a major supporter of Hamas, has also made strategic movements, including relocating troops stationed in Syria closer to the Israeli border, as reported by the Wall Street Journal on the 15th. Hamas leader Ismail Haniyeh met with Iranian Foreign Minister Hossein Amir Abdolian in Qatar on the 14th, pledging to strengthen their cooperation. Iran's leadership has repeatedly indicated its readiness to intervene if a ground operation is launched, raising concerns particularly for Sunni-majority Saudi Arabia and other neighboring nations. Israel's military spokesperson also stated on the same day that they would begin a large-scale military operation with Seymour Hirsch, a Pulitzer Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist writing on his website that Israel will soon conduct airstrikes with joint direct attack munitions in Gaza and follow up with the ground invasion. So these munitions is are a powerful weapon capable of killing everyone within a radius of 800 meters. Fearing increased Iranian involvement, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken met with Saudi Arabia's de facto ruler, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, in Riyadh on the 15th to discuss a possible solution to the crisis. That's right. Again, we have been seeing sides forming for quite mm-hmm. a while now. Uh, Iran has been cautious, but the U.S. has been long fearing that the Iranians are going to get involved with mm-hmm. this. The other side of this is Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia's Mohammed bin Salman al-Saud has actually come out openly saying that they're in support of Palestine, not the Hamas. Mm-hmm. Again, very little countries out there coming out saying that we're in support of Hamas, especially because all of the battalion that we've been seeing on the strikes here. But uh, I want to kind of give uh, some updates on the ceasefire, the humanitarian ceasefire that I talked about earlier here. Mm -hmm. Initially, again, Egypt had reported that Israel, the U.S. and Egypt, had agreed to a five-hour time frame, is what they say, that was starting at 9 a.m. Israel time. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is currently 12.23 p.m. Israel time at this time. Uh, But despite this, so what the ceasefire was supposed to do is help people evacuate, get people, foreigners and some uh, Gaza residents, some of the uh, Gaza residents, evacuate southwards towards the Rafah route and Mm -hmm. uh, head over to Egypt, I believe was what Mm -hmm. it was. Uh, And also that five hour time frame would allow humanitarian assistance to flow into Gaza as well. But the problem with this at this time is Israel has still is continuing to deny the fact that there's a humanitarian ceasefire put in place. So the whole time I'm trying to figure out, because again, 9 a.m. till, let's see, five hours, so that'll be 3 p.m. Uh, Israel time. It's still 12.23. If the ceasefire was supposed to happen, uh, it's happening right now, but there's no reports of this being confirmed at this time. Israel, 49 minutes ago, according to the BBC, Israel says no truth in South Gaza as thousands wait at border crossings. So there are people who got the news about this humanitarian Mm -hmm. ceasefire waiting to go south. But Israel, despite the fact that they were apparently, uh, along with uh, the U.S. and Egypt, were part of this agreement, uh, there's nothing happening. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu coming out saying that, denying the fact that there is this Rafah reopening. So... Major concerns on a humanitarian basis as well. We've been talking about the U.S. 
sort of getting involved with this. Let's talk mm-hmm. about a CBS in-depth interview program, 60 Minutes. I'm sure you guys all heard of that. This happened on Sunday. President Biden was mm-hmm. asked if he would support Israel's occupation of Gaza at this point in the conflict with Hamas, which began with the Hamas raid on the 7th of this month. Uh, his reply was, I think that it would be a big mistake. Hannah, tell us more about this interview. Yes. Now, he added that look at what's happening in Gaza. Hamas and its extreme offshoots do not represent the entire Palestinian population. So reoccupying Gaza would be a big mistake for Israel, is what he said. So earlier in January 2006, the Israeli Defense Forces, or IDF, withdrew its uh, troops and left more than 20 Jewish uh, settlements in Gaza 38 years after capturing the territory from Egypt as part of a peace deal. The territory has since been under Palestinian authority control, but Hamas took over Gaza in June 2007 after a civil war that ousted Fatah forces that followed West Bank-based Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud uh, Abbas. Biden, who has been an outspoken opponent of Israel's uh, occupation of Gaza is notable for his comments as Israel's impending ground war on Gaza continues amid growing international opposition and concern. Biden, however, while uh, reaffirming his full support for Israel, drew a um, line at a possible deployment of U.S. troops to Israel. And he added that efforts to normalize relations between Israel and Saudi Arabia will take time but are still ongoing. And when asked if he was running for a real election next year, he reaffirmed that he was saying yes and that we have many opportunities to make the world a better place. Yeah, uh, (laughs) re-election is, (laughs) that's going to be a whole different story. But uh, Mm -hmm. yeah, the the U.S., many experts have said this, the U.S. would be very foolish Mm -hmm. uh, to be deploying troops to Israel. Uh, But again, going back to the ceasefire Uh, The reason why this is very concerning at this time is because, again, there's a lot of people who heard the story or the news that there is a five-hour time frame of humanitarian ceasefire. They're moving towards the border. There's a lot of them moving, uh, waiting at the border. But the reason why they're... The speculation right now, the reason why Israel is, quote-unquote, allegedly allowing for this ceasefire to happen is because they're trying to evacuate as many Gaza residents as possible before they launch a full-out ground operation is what it is. But if they decide they're going to be launching this ground operation with people there still there in the border, that's going to lead to a massive casualty. Uh, Biden, obviously, uh, coming out saying that, I mean, he has come out in full support of Israel, Mm -hmm. uh, but occupation of Gaza is a whole different historic issue Mm -hmm. that I'm sure a lot of our listeners have probably heard uh, by now at this time. But uh, Israel hasn't really been happy with the kind of support that they're giving so far. Although there's been support, uh, they were really upset at UN pointing out the fact that uh, there's been many uh, children and women being killed in Gaza. And they're like, why are you pointing that out? Uh, And so forth. But again, it's, it's devastating. Let's talk about The South Korean government also uh, sending a military aircraft to evacuate 163 Korean citizens. Uh, This along with 51 Japanese nationals as well, all the way from Israel, uh, as the situation is worsening. Uh, Minji, let's get more on this. 
Sure. So on the 14th, the South Korean government announced the dispatch of a military transport aircraft to evacuate 163 South Korean citizens from Israel who were caught in the midst of escalating hostilities between Israel and the Palestinian military group Hamas. In an official statement jointly released by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and the Ministry of National Defense, it was explained that the decision to send a military transport aircraft and a rapid response team to Israel was made on the 13th to ensure the safety of South Korean citizens, especially in a situation where the reduction of resident numbers is slow. Of the 163 individuals on the military transport aircraft, 81 were long-term residents and 82 were short-term travelers. The South Korean military transport aircraft successfully brought back 163 South Korean citizens along with 51 Japanese individuals and their families, totaling 220 passengers from Israel on the 14th. The South Korean aircraft provided this service at no cost, prompting criticism among Japanese citizens residing in Israel who were actually required to pay 30,000 yen, which is approximately 270 U.S. dollars per person for the Japanese government chartered plane. Japanese Minister for Foreign Affairs Kyoto Tsuji expressed gratitude to South Korean Minister of Foreign Affairs Park Jin for South Korea's assistance in evacuating Japanese citizens from Israel. Meanwhile, the fact that the Japanese government's charter plane required individuals to pay 30,000 yen per person for the service, which was very much in contrast with South Korea's free transportation, was reported at Kyoto News, and this prompted criticism from Japanese residents staying in Israel. It also triggered various online reactions in Japan, with some expressing gratitude to South Korea, while others criticized their own government for what they saw as a slow response to the crisis. Yeah, I'm not sure if uh, Japanese State Minister for Foreign Affairs uh, Kyoto Suji also uh, thanked. Maybe he did, but I do know that uh, Yoko Kamikawa was the uh, the foreign minister, Japanese mm. foreign minister, uh, had phone talks with uh, Foreign Minister Park Jin and uh, thanked uh, South Korea for assisting in the uh, the military, the operation, the evacuation operation there. But again, for our listeners, uh, we'll keep a close tab on the issue. But for now, guys, thank you very much for your report. Have a safe one, and we'll see you guys again. Thank you. Thank you. You can listen to Korea Now with me, SJ Lee, by downloading the Arirang Radio application or tune in online by visiting www.arirangradio.com. So make sure you tune in Mondays through Fridays, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Korea time.